0: All right, so we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse uh, 14, and I'll just preface that by saying, you'll find this in a lot of the Bible, but especially in Paul's teaching, there's just, we could go almost verse by verse, and we'd be in this thing for years, and I'm sure you've been in churches where that's happened, but so we're, we're missing, we're going to miss the first 13 verses, and that's, there's really nothing, there's no reason for that other than just you make decisions, and so I wanted to really focus in on these last Seven verse, six seven verses, because it's just such an amazing passage. I think that has uh, some things for us. So let's read this together. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray out of the glorious, out of His glorious riches, that He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's dive in. So this morning, we're going to talk about, I was joking, how many people know the Power Team, have heard of the Power Team? Yeah, there's a few of you. We're going to talk about power. I don't have any Power Team videos because I thought of it just this morning, but I didn't actually. Somebody else did, and I was like, oh, that would have been so cool. But anyway, if you have no clue... You've been saved. So, uh, but we're going to talk about the world's kind of need for power. And I had this conversation with my kids, not about the power team this last week, but about welcome to the Brace family dinner table, performance enhancing drugs in sports. So we're, I don't know how we got on it, but I'm talking about it for some reason. And um, at one point, my, my eight-year-old son, Elliot, said this to me. He said, Why? Like, why do athletes do that to their bodies? We were, like, getting into not the graphic detail of blood doping and cycling, because I'm a cyclist, but kind of. And um, he's like, that seems really wrong. And he's kind of putting a value judgment on it. He says, it just takes the fun out of playing games and sports. And then he said this crazy thing. They should want to compete just for the fun of it, because they like it. Yeah. And of course, that's an eight-year-old's perspective, which is, by the way, just so... Refreshing, right? But so naive because here's the deal. Sports, whether it's amateur or professional, doesn't matter. We all know this at some point in our lives, whether it's after you turn nine, as Ellie will next February or much later high school or college or an adult life is about more than just fun. We all know this. Um, I mean, how many have seen the documentary Icarus? How many of you guys have seen that? So I heard about this, uh, just a little while ago. It's the story of this amateur cyclist named Brian Fogel. And it chronicles his attempt, you can watch it on Netflix, um, to win this amateur cycling race using performance-enhancing drugs. EPO was the drug. And to show how doping is still influencing cycling at all levels, amateur, professional. And in the process, uh, spoiler alert here, he stumbles upon a, m- a major international doping scandal. So eventually it results in the expulsion of Russia from the Sochi Olympics that they happen to be hosting in 2014, which, as he suggests in the documentary, leads the Russians to retaliate by tampering with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. So it's fast. If you don't care a lick about cycling, you'll love Icarus, because it's really about so much more. And it's shocking and yet sobering, this story about how in sports at all levels, really it's a window into how our broader culture has this hunger for recognition and influence and power in our lives. We do. There's, some, there's this need, as the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once said, that the world is the, is, is the will to power, uh, and nothing besides. The world's the will to power. And you yourselves are the will to power, and nothing besides. We have this, this need to be worthy and worth something. We exert ourselves in power games, uh, like Fogel discovered. We have a hunger for power. Uh, and this is important because in Ephesians 3, as you heard me read it, God says that he too longs for our lives to course with power. At Three different times. Paul says, I pray, for this reason I pray, out of his glorious riches God might, riches God might strengthen you with power through his spirit. The literal Greek word there for power is dunamis, where we get the English word dynamite. So God wants our lives to explode with power, to be so filled and coarse with power that we as his followers would be un- an unstoppable, uh, unstoppable force in the world. Here's the deal though what we see in Paul's kind of articulation of this power of God is that it's, it's a radically different sort of power than EPO or presidential politi- political power or military power. It's, none of, it's unconventional, it's like none of those things that we see in the movie Icarus or any other sorts of things you see in the sporting world or other places. In, the, in other words, God says no, flat no, to the traditional, conventional kind of power sources that motivate and drive the world around us. No to those. I'll have none of it. Uh, and yet, he says yes to his power. A power that, as we see in Paul's prayer, is not only of a different kind, it's totally different in kind, but from a different source and achieved through different means. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at this morning is God's power and how that power can make home in our lives and then come, course, through us. And so here's the outline you'll have this morning. Uh, we're going to look a little more at why we need God's power because it's important to sort of set the stage. We'll look at what it is, if it's different in kind and, and like what is God's power, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how we kind of get God's power, okay? And we'll go th- top to bottom in this passage starting in verse 16, okay? So starting with why we need it. And Paul says it right at the beginning, verse 16, uh, that Christ makes strength in you, okay? So we need power or strength because we're weak. <laughs> we lack it. Uh, we just don't, we're not born like kids, babies can't even hold their heads up uh, when they're born. And so we lack fundamentally as human beings power or strength which is in a culture that values, as I already said around Icarus and other things, strength and power, that's not a very popular message. Like, if you, if you come into the world powerless, the thing you're taught to do your whole life is to get strong, you know, to do strength training, to learn to stand on your own two feet, to kind of make your own decisions. And the Bible says, well, you're, you're weak. Um, and that's, that's a really important message for us to hear, especially as you evaluate yourself in light of the gospel. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, one of my little, favorite little Pauline things. He says uh, he's, he's talking about the thorn in his flesh. He, God's grabbed him. Jesus has grabbed him on the road to Damascus. He's been converted to Jesus. And he seems to continue to deal with some sort of issue. He calls it a thorn, some sort of besetting sin all throughout his life. And so then he prays. Famously, he says three times, pleads with Jesus to remove this thorn, right? Remember this in 2 Corinthians 12? Remember what Jesus uh, says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? He says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect through what? Your weakness. To which Paul says, Well, then forget it, Jesus. I'm going to find somebody else, another Savior, who can take this thorn out and heal me and fix me and make me strong, like a strength training coach. No, he doesn't say that. I'm just checking. Uh, He says... Even so, even though Jesus says, no, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect through your weakness. Paul says, I'm going to actually boast, make, be proud of my weakness <laughs> so that Christ might, Christ's power might rest in me. Indeed, I delight. He says, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and discouragement and persecution. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I mean, he totally flips the script on the world. It's really inspiring to me because what does it mean when Paul says that? When he doesn't push back against Jesus and say, Jesus, come on now, I want to be tough like the other guys, you know? When he says, when he embraces his weakness, what does that really mean for us today? And I was thinking about that, and then I, this is my random brain, so just come along for the ride for a sec. I immediately thought of Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32. So I'm kind of studying this this week. And so here's the context of Jacob. He's on the run from his brother Esau. Remember this story? And he's, you know, Jacob is kind of this insecure little brother. And he gets out in the desert on his own. He's tired. He's afraid. I'm guessing he's feeling a little powerless, right? Hungry. Esau's just hunting him down. So he lays down to take a nap, to rest and he's, sleep, he's at night. It's nighttime, sleeping in the desert, not sure, probably anxious dreams. Remember this? God doesn't just meet Jacob in a dream like he does other people. Um, God literally meets Jacob in the flesh, and remember what they do. They wrestle, a little wrestling match. Talk about power. Why does God choose to meet Jacob in that way? Like, What's the point of that? I mean, couldn't God have done something like he did with Moses, like a fire in a bush, or or Joseph, like dream state, like just give him visions of what he's supposed to do and instead God wrestles with Jacob. Why does he do that? So in Pennsylvania, when we lived back there, I actually got really into wrestling for a short time. I've never wrestled. I fell in love with wrestling. A member of our church there is the coach at Lehigh University, the wrestling team. They're, like, one of the top five wrestling teams in the, in the NCAA, and they're really good. So, like, they have Olympic wrestlers on their team. So I got to sit with the team and watch these wrestling matches for four years. It was so fun. And I got to know some things about wrestling, just sitting there listening to the coaches and talking to them and stuff. Fascinating sport. What's most fascinating, I think, as a non-wrestler about wrestling is you compare it to other sports like cycling, which I do or running, or baseball, or golf, or whatever, is that in nearly every other sport, you're only using some muscles some of the time. So like in cycling, mostly legs, like big muscles down here. Baseball, mostly upper body, though you're using other muscles as well. Arm wrestling, only arms, ever. (laughs) (laughs) Curling, I don't even know. Sorry, I'm going to throw all the curlers under the bus. By the way, back back to the Winter Olympics, did you guys hear about that guy from the curling team in Russia that got expelled from the Olympics this last year? Anyway, I'm not sure what's up with that. But in wrestling, every single one of your muscles, every single one of your bones in your body, what I learned, has to correspondingly like press against every single muscle and bone of, that, of your opponent if you're going to win. It's all about at all times, head and neck even, like you're watching these guys push with their whole necks, and their necks are like the size of a truck. And it, like you're watching them use all their weight, all their body, all their strength to push for the, 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 to win the match. And, and in that way, three minutes is all a wrestling match lasts. Three minutes is like the most absolutely exhausting. It's just amazing to watch how it's agony on, the, on a mat. It's brutal to watch. These guys come out three minutes later just completely sweat dripping in sweat and just can barely walk. And listen, Jacob, in Genesis 32, he wrestles God, not for three minutes, not for three hours, the entire night, eight, 12 hours. I don't know how long the night was then. I can't imagine that, having watched wrestling at the collegiate level. It just seems ludicrous to me. So why did God choose to wrestle with Jacob? Think about this for a second. Like, why are they wrestling out there in the desert? Well, at the very beginning of that that evening, when when God showed up, uh, He didn't show up and say, "Let me just God, Jacob, let me just explain to you the meaning of your life." It's not Rachel, it's not Esau. Let me explain it to you. It let me let me tell you about it. He didn't do that. He 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 said, "I'm going to wrestle it out of you. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you." with my my weight and your weight. We're going to not talk about it. We're going to hug it out, as they say. And let me just speak for myself. Just if I were Jacob, there's absolutely no way in my life, except through disappointment and frustration and agony, that I would have learned the things that God's taught me I would have never learned that if I just had a preacher, if I was sitting in the front row, had a preacher tell me week in and week out. I don't know how you guys learned from me. Like, I would have never learned it in a classroom. The only way I could have learned the things I've learned in life, and I'm sure you're the same way, is that, is, is by somebody like God coming so close to me, in such contact with me, through very difficult moments of wrestling and strain to understand those things. That's the reason Jacob wrestles God. And... Listen to this. That's the reason Jacob wins. Remember this: Jacob wins the match. He gets God's blessing, and the reason he wins is he, he says, "God, I won't, I won't stop wrestling you until you bless me." The reason he wins is he, its like him saying, "I've been wrong my whole life. I repent. I've been—I've been seeking my meaning from all the wrong sources. Um, I haven't been listening to you." Uh, He wins by admitting his weakness, by saying uh, he wins through losing, basically. And that's why he ends up with a limp in his hip. God says to him, you've overcome me, the creator of heaven and the earth, because you've admitted you're a failure. You've admitted that you're weak. You're blessed because you know your weakness. So Jacob's victory in, in, in that moment isn't because he's stronger than God or like, has more endurance than God or is craftier than God, he's blessed he, because he's weak. And he's able to say, uh, God, I need you. From this moment forward, I, I need your acceptance, your assurance, your blessing, your permanent joy in my life. And, and actually, one, one pastor says that Genesis 32 in that way is a perfect picture of what Paul talks about In 2 Corinthians, that I will rejoice in my weakness. And why Paul says he prays for us in Ephesians 3 uh, for God's power because we're weak. We need strength. We need assurance. And what I mean by weakness, um, do you realize that if you know God, if you have his blessing in your life like that, if you don't have to save face anymore in front of other people, if you don't have to defend yourself to other people, if you know you're a failure. You can admit you've failed, you know? You can, you're strong enough to be weak. You're strong enough. Uh, you have a permanent joyful weakness. As, as Luther says somewhere, we're simul justus et peccator. We're simultaneously justified by God and yet also absolutely unconditionally loved. And, and we're failures and yet we're loved. That's kind of what that whole thing's about. Um, and so, friends, we have to learn to meet God in our weakness. That's the point here. As we'll understand that our weakness, our weakness, is actually the p- entry point for the gospel into our lives. It's the place that God will begin His redemptive work when we're able to, to say, "I'm weak. I need strength." Um, so, here's the question I want to give you at the, this point: We. Uh, I was on a lead pastor retreat this week. Uh, so we have six locations, and we have lead pastors for each of these locations. And so we were out in kind of Entiat, which is near Wenatchee. And we, at one of the most provocative questions from the week we, we talked about was this question from our senior pastor, Richard, where he asked us one morning, how is your brokenness or your weakness? So here's the question we talked about. How is your weakness or your brokenness informing your leadership? Uh, so we, we talked, we, Richard asked this question, and we had a little devotional time where we, t- we thought about it. And, man, immediately I started thinking about the areas of my life I've shared from the stage here before in, w- in which I'm incredibly broken. For example, family stuff. There's a pillow on my grandma's couch that says, we put the fun in dysfunction. And it's like, it's kind of true in our family. And I've shared that from the stage before. And, and, and recently, you know, I've been pastoring this church for four years or so. I've had some conversations with some folks here around their own family issues, and I'm I'm sitting with people, and I'm I'm being invited in now, to stand with them in weakness, uh, to walk them through, and say, you know, the story of my family doesn't end happily. I don't even know how it ends yet. We're in the middle of it. We're in the we're in the middle. It's it's going fair to middle, okay, uh, but I can sit with people in that because my. My weakness is now informing my leadership. Being able to sit with somebody and go, I don't have to put a band-aid on this. I don't have to tell you it's going to get better. I'm just with you. It's actually, as I thought about it, the same reason I have such a passion for having children as part of our community, fully integrated parts of our community. Some of you visitors might feel like, man, when the kids got up, a little uneasy. Like, wow, there's a lot of kids here and a lot of noise. The reason for that, part of the reason, is I grew up as a latchkey kid in the 80s. And uh, TV dinners by myself in the backyard with one of those little nets you throw a baseball against, teaching myself. That's why I'm not a major league baseball player, because I had to teach myself. I'm kidding, but kidding. Uh, and so I was often very alone and lonely growing up. And I, 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 I've said to myself at every turn in ministry, I don't want a single person, but especially young people, to experience that in my church. N- never. So our kids have a space to explore a relationship with God and with each other, a space of belonging, deep belonging. And that's a place of brokenness for me that informs my leadership. It's just a way of sort of saying, I'm weak. I'm not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect pastor. And that gets to inform the way we do church, the way I lead in this community. And so how is your brokenness? Think about this. What area of brokenness are you carrying right now? How might that inform your own leadership, whether it's an addiction that you are dealing with? Or anxiety or depression? We lost Anthony Bourdain this week. How would it have been, I don't know who in his life was speaking into the darkness in his life, but how would it have been if a church stood with him and said, it's okay, it's okay that you're struggling with dark demons of depression. Let's face those together. Let's do that together. Um, You know, there's a sense of failure in in your marriage and intimacy. You feel like, man, everybody else seems to have it together. They're holding hands. They have their arms around each other. And we can barely talk. You know, it's an area of weakness, yes. How could that inform your leadership? Is it in work? As you feel insufficient at your desk in the morning? How could that inform the workplace you work in? My, my hope is that we'd meet Christ in our weakness and then allow God to move through our weakness so we'd be a vital source of strength to world around us, okay? So that's why we need it. Here's the second thing, uh, real quick, what it is. And Paul says in verse 17... You need, weak, you need strength because you're weak, here's what it is, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. So, it's really important to keep in mind, just contextually, this is a prayer for Christians. Paul's praying for believers. Um, he's not praying for them to be converted to Christ. He's praying, presuming that they've already agreed to follow Jesus. And so, When you realize that, there's a number of little puzzles that confront you immediately. For example, in verse 16, he prays that Christ would dwell on their hearts, okay? Here's the problem with that. Earlier in Ephesians in chapter 2, if you just flip back a page, he says that Christ is indwelling their hearts in Ephesians 2.22. So why is he praying for that to happen? That's kind of weird. And here, and then in 18 and 19, uh, in chapter 3, he says, I also pray that you'll know the love of Christ. And... (laughs) Was that just slip of the tongue? Because everywhere in Paul's writing, you have in in Romans and Colossians, Paul is saying there's plenty of places that if you're a Christian, Christ is dwelling in your life, deeply indwelling your life. So all Christians are indwelled with Christ. From jump, all Christians have the love of Christ. You don't have to keep asking for it. God is indwelling your life. And then he goes on at the end of the prayer and says, I pray that you be filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians 1, he says, you are filled with the fullness of God. I'm like, Paul, can you make up your mind, please? Which one is it? And so why is he praying fervently that his Christian friends need uh, to get what he said elsewhere they already have? What's that about? And as I reflected on that this week, I realized there's really only one answer to that, what seems like an inconsistency in Paul's theology. And it's this, it's one thing to believe, believe in and trust in, And in the the love of God, it's another thing to experience, have an experience of the love of God, experience of the trust of God. Uh, So he says, I pray in your inner being that you would have this experience. That inner being is like the very center of your consciousness, your heart of hearts, like unshakable core, okay? And thus, it's one thing to know, like here in my head, I, I I know God's, like Jesus is God. I know, I believe that he rose from the dead all that right here, it's another thing to, to actually experience that and put your, your life in his hands. Um, maybe a, a good way to illustrate this, I, I kind of have used this before, is, is if you think about your bank account, okay? Uh, it, it, it's one thing to have a bank account filled with money, okay? You all have, like, tons of money in your bank accounts. It's another thing to actually draw on that account and then use that money in your life and in the life of other people. It's, it's not good enough just to save it up till you die. Because as they say, you can't take it with you on the day you die, right? But I've, been, I've told this story before. I'm going to say again. There's this woman I heard about once in a magazine. Lived in abject poverty. This is kind of in the Midwest. And then uh, she lived like on a shoestring. She, she learned to live with virtually nothing. Kind of you can picture a little town in the Midwest. And then one day, it wasn't like a lottery or anything, but this, this man comes to her house and says, Hey, uh, you've inherited $10 million. And it's in a trust fund for you. You can access it anytime you want. It's yours. You can make your life better with it. She didn't even have to use it for, like, philanthropy or anything. And here's the deal. She's pretty old at this point, up in her 80s or so. And though she believed the truth, like, she knew this guy wasn't just making it up. She actually saw the money in the account. She didn't spend a dime of it. Never. She died about eight eight eight, eight years later, she dies and she had, didn't spend a single penny of the $10 million that she'd inherited. Now, here's the interesting thing. The, the only conclusion the author of that article I read can make was that this woman believed that she was rich intellectually, but she had lived in poverty for so long, uh, she had no concept of that amount of money. She had no concept that while that amount of money would change, not just her life, but the community in which she lived, she, she couldn't grasp having $10 million dollars. The immensity of those riches, which is just the point Paul's trying to make here in Ephesians. He's, that's why he's praying for the Ephesian community to have this immense experience of God's love. In other words, it's one thing to have wealth. It's another thing to draw on that wealth and then begin to use that wealth. Uh, in fact, she died saying this phrase that was in the article, what would I have done with that? What would I do with that kind of money? I mean, how, how many of you ever said that? about money or about anything. What would I do with that? And, and Paul's saying, you have an incredible resource in your life, the immeasurable riches of God. He's so rich, he's given you this inheritance, Christ in your life. And many of us are doing the exact same thing. What would I do with that? What would I do with Christ's presence in my life? We, we think like coming to church on Sunday, singing a song, opening the Bible, doing a little praying, and then going home, is, it's just good enough. What would I do with the rest? Why would I choose to do anything more? And Paul's praying, I, I just pray out of His glorious, riches, God might strengthen you with power to, through the Spirit in your inner being that you'd know how much you're loved, that you'd know how much you're redeemed, that you'd know that just the, the infinite power of God in your life. Um, it's like this, we're just... As C.S. Lewis says, we're like these half-hearted creatures that just kind of play around in the mud. We have this seashore that God's given us to to create amazing sandcastles. We're far too easily pleased by the things we experience. And God wants us to have a deep desire for his fullness. Um, There's a difference between believing in God in our heads and then knowing God in our hearts. Um, And to not only know Christ is present within your experiences, but then active in your life. Is this making sense? Uh, and so, God desires that for you in a fullness, which leads to this third point. I want to I f- finish with this because it's really important to kind of put some, I guess, some, some handles on this for you. How? Like, if I believe, if, if the knowledge of God that I have has moved from my head to my heart, if I really believe that, then how might that start working its way out of my life? And there's a ton in this prayer, some of which I talked about last week. He talks about together with the saints, you do it in community. Right, uh, he talks about um, identity in here. So we we gave you the first week this identity sheet on who I am in Christ. You can work it out by just remembering who you are. I want to just key in on one thing. Listen to this prayer again. Okay, I'm going to just read the 18 to 20 real quick. He says, "I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, so There's the community piece to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ." and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So over the years, I've spent some time in this prayer, both personally just praying it for myself, and then with people, just praying through it with them in ministry. And it's actually pretty interesting that Paul says, I want you to have the power of God in you. Uh, I want you to feel his power, know his power, course of this power, but it doesn't say, here's how you get the power, by gazing at God's power, Meditating on his power and reflecting on his power. He doesn't say that. Notice what he says. I want you to reflect on his love. You, get, you have an assurance of God's power by meditating, reflecting, and looking at God's love. Know the deep, wide, high, long love of God. That's how God's power begins to, to, to work in, in and through your life. Might you be rooted and established in that love. Now, What's so intriguing about that to me is this. Obviously, kind of the epitome of God's love is the cross. That's kind of one of the, obviously, the cornerstones and uniqueness, unique things of Christianity. It's, it's for love, as uh, 1 John says, it's for love because of love, this incredible act of love that God chooses to go to the cross for us. So here's the question. I want to finish it. What's the relationship between the cross of Christ and the power of God? And how, how might the cross of Christ uh, bring the power of God into our lives. And it's very paradoxical. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And, and then he goes on and talks about how it's foolishness to, it's stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, but those whom God's called, the power of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Do you, do you see the paradox here? Paul's saying that when most people look at the cross of Christ— they don't see power. They see a foolish, uh, first-century, no-name, helpless rabbi. All he could get was 12 people, 11 by the end. That's all he could get. And there's, they say there's no more poignant depiction of helplessness than this cross. And you Christians, you've just checked the left side of your brain like you have no idea the foolishness of that story. This man nailed, utterly defenseless. You know, you, could, you can stab him. They did. You can hear insults at him. They did. He's suffocating. He can say nothing. It's just powerlessness. And yet, Paul says, the cross shows the power of God. Why is that? Why, how does the cross show the power of God? And the answer, he says in 1 Corinthians, as well as elsewhere, like in Philippians 2, is that the cross was radically voluntary. Philippians 2, though he was equal to God in power, had the same power quotient as God, Christ didn't count his equality with God as something to be held on to. But he let go of it. He gave it up. Voluntarily. Radically voluntary. Scripture shows us time and again that Jesus was the most powerful human being to ever walk the face of the earth, and yet he didn't... voluntarily did not exercise that power. Uh, He became powerless and defenseless. Why? For love. He did it for love. He said, you know, when he's on the cross looking down at people, and they're they're just criticizing him, hurling insults at him, remember what he said? (laughs) Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. You know, he didn't break the bonds like Samson. Remember Samson? He's tied to the the pillar, people all around him, insulting him, calling him a fool. And what, remember what Samson did? Broke the bonds, and he just said, well, I'm going I'm to whoop them now. You know, look at me. Jesus stayed on the cross. He said, no, forgive them. I'm going to continue on this path. Uh, he not only stayed, but, but then he, he, he continued through that journey with his people for generations. It was for love, and his immense love for us. That we see his immense power for us. So, do you want God's power in your life? Do you want to experience the depth of God's love? Um, what the cross shows us is that sacrificial love transforms uh, and triumphs where naked power can never can never do it. So, the world says, "Hey, be strong," um, and be strong means never let down your guard. Don't be vulnerable. Um, don't admit you're weak. You know, as you're a guy here, man up. You know, kind of do that. Don't cry. Here's the deal, though. People who are never defenseless, never vulnerable, never give up power, they're always proud. They're always afraid. They're they're always trusting themselves. And we know what the Bible says. Pride goes before the fall. There's nothing weaker than having to always feel like you're in control of your own destiny. There's nothing stronger than being able to give that up and say, I'm going to be vulnerable here. I'm going to tell you where I'm struggling. And so the cross shows us real power, by saying to us, don't get in lockstep with the world and the way the world uh, works. Get in lockstep with God. You want God's power in your life? Begin to meditate on the immensity of God's vulnerability on the cross. He did it for love, and, and He promises to give you the power you need to walk into any situation, uh, especially those areas of weakness, and, and discourse through your life. Um, I'll finish with this. Brennan Manning, one of my favorite kind of spiritual authors, he put it this way about the cross. He says, uh, Jesus, whom alone reveals the Father in this way, from him we learn that there is welcoming love, unconditional acceptance, and relentless and eternal affection that so far exceeds our human experience that even the cross and the death of Jesus are only a hint of God's love. Just a hint. And so think of that for a moment, the broken, weak, vulnerable, defenseless Jesus gives you a hint of the Father's incredible, vast, and immeasurable love for you. And so uh, what I pray for us, as Paul was praying, is that us being rooted and established in God's love, by just meditating on the, the death of Jesus, on the life of Christ, uh, might grasp the power of God um, and not hold on to it so we can have it, but be blown away by it so that we be a resource to the world around us, rooted and grounded in love. May we be rooted in his love um, and drink from his love so deeply that we uh, we know who we are. I want to invite the worship team up. Uh, And you're going to notice there's a little bit of the prayer I want to finish with as our benediction, but I'm going to leave that. there was a little like write-in section in your bulletin, so just kind of hold that for a moment, and I'm going to pray for us. Okay, God, we uh, we thank you that the the power of Christ um, is unconventional. Um, we live in a world that is hungry for power that um, is driven by the will to power. We're using that in so many different ways. Um, um, For some of us, it can be kind of intoxicating. We we go into the workplace. We feel like we have to exert ourselves. Um, We parent kids that are sometimes not cooperative, and we feel like we have to be stronger than them. Um, uh, We watch the world around us, and we see how those games are being played out politically and socially. And so, God, we... We just want to confess that we, we need Christ to redeem those places in our lives uh, where we've been kind of grasping for strength um, out of our own resources. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would help us identify the areas of weakness in our lives. And we thank you that those areas, uh, whatever they are, are vital s- sources of your power that you will promise to demonstrate yourself good and gracious and loving through us. And so, God, would you do that work? Would you call to memory this morning um, the areas where we're struggling and allow us to come to you in humility uh, through worship? We pray in Christ's name.